Welcome to our 47th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Russell, we have winners. I can't remember who won the Tank Hunter book. We, we, we had actually went through all our stuff, and oh, I remember who won. <laughs> Everybody's going to think this is a setup. It, it is not. <laughs> Rick Schmidt. Rick Schmidt. <laughs> we had that uh, little, I don't know, little lotto system that you yeah. put everybody's name in and it just scrolls through. Yep. And it stopped on Rick Schmidt. <laughs> I said, oh, they're gonna, everybody's going to go, oh, bull. That's, that's. Nope. But Rick, if yep. you hear this, send us your address. I think we know you're in Canada or whatever, but we'll send it to you. And the magazine that me and you and Lightning signed, uh, about the tank, uh, Mark one tank, uh, who, who won that? Yeah. Seth Steadley out of South beach, Oregon won that. All right. So Seth, congratulations mm-hmm. to you, Rick. Can, Thank you everybody for all the support support guys. We, we had tons of people yeah, putting in for it. We really so did. It was yeah. great. Yeah. And that was fun and look for more giveaways like that in the future. Yeah. I'm going to, Go to Ed Webster or Francis Pullman yeah. and see if we can't get them to sign a book and send it to us. Yeah, that'd be neat. That would be cool. And once again, thank you, Craig Moore, for sending us the book to actually give away. Uh, absolutely. It means a lot, man. Have you had a chance to read through his book yet? I, I have started, yes. Yeah, I, Craig, you're amazing. Yeah. Uh, and again, we're not trying to plug him or anything. It's just a simple fact. If you are starting a library on military history or on tanks, the very first book that you have to get is Craig Moore's Tank Hunter because it's about the very first tank, yeah, the Mark. So, yep, you know all the World War One tanks. Yeah, so th- that's the first book you start. That's where you need to start, guys. Y- you know, when I started out researching all this stuff, and I mean, this is when I was a kid. There wasn't a lot of tank books and yeah. now there is oh i know it's pretty neat out there now with <laughs> all the historians you know and, and craig is a true historian he is i seen where he was complaining on his facebook page the other day something about that he didn't win the lottery to get into the their archives i guess they only had a certain amount of slots open to get into the archives with this virus going on and he wasn't able to to get in when he wanted to here the other day here's the deal if i in the guy running the archives, I would assume that they have somebody that knows something about tanks. You get somebody that's a professional, yeah, like Craig. Uh, come on, I know, I know. You're like, okay, we need him in there, you know. Especially everything he's done for the archives, he's yeah. always talking about it and showing pictures of it. You know, getting news out there. If it wasn't for people like Craig, I wouldn't know about it. I know, yeah. So, anyway, I guess we'll get to our first and second point, because it's going to be kind of a long one. Oh, I wanted to tell you that I've been writing a book. Oh, no. And, you know, I've been writing it for about two years now. Yeah. And I'm on my last chapter. 
and uh, it, it's not tank related. Yeah. But um, I sent it to an editor. Yeah. And they sent it back or sent me a message back, and they're like, "Hey, so far we're loving it." And I'm like, "Awesome." Yeah. So you know, when I get my book published, Heck it's yeah. nothing tank related. But uh, uh, I will I will definitely give a co- copy away of my book. Heck yeah, that's pretty neat. <laughs> uh, you know, I I just saw all these guys writing these books, and I'm yeah. like, you know, I can do this. And oh, now yeah. now that I'm retired, I've really had the chance to sit down and write, yeah. and I love it. Yeah. You know, you actually think that you're working on something, and I try to dedicate at least eight hours a day. Yeah. So to make it an actual job, mm-hmm. and it's just great. Yeah. So when I get my book published, we'll, we'll there we go. We'll put that out. Yeah. Unfortunately, Russ didn't have a lot of time. I have zero time, guys. <laughs> I barely have time for this right now. To be honest with you, it's- now that I'm a retired police officer and Russ is still what two, three years away. I'm uh, a couple years out. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest what's going on in the United States right now and how busy and undermanned and people are leaving left and right. You know, it's not a good time to be a police officer right now. And, uh, you know, and Russ is just catching the brunt of it, having to work tons and tons. We'll try not to get all political about that. Let's just (laughs) go straight into the thing. Our first point, we are going to talk about the Sherman Firefly. Now we have talked about the Sherman in great detail and we've touched on the Firefly, but I think it deserves its own episode. So we're going to do that, and we're going to talk about Douglas K, the luckiest man in the world. If you don't know anything about Douglas K, <laughs> we're going to give you a Frosted Flakes Heck version. Yeah. But uh, we suggest, as always, that you look it up yourself. The Sherman Firefly was a tank used by the United Kingdom and some Commonwealth and Allied armored formations in the Second World War. It was based on the U.S. M4 Sherman, but fitted with a powerful 3-inch or 7.6.2 millimeter caliber British 17-pounder anti-tank gun uh, as its main weapon. Originally conceived as a stopgap until future British tank designs came into service, the Sherman Firefly became the most common vehicle mounting the 17-pounder in the war. During the war, the British Army made extensive use of Sherman tanks. Though they expected to have their own tank models developed soon, the previously rejected idea of mounting the 17-pounder in the existing Sherman was eventually accepted, despite initial government resistance. This proved fortunate, as both the Cruiser Mark 8 Challenger and Cruiser Mark 8 Cromwell tank designs experienced difficulties and delays. After the difficult problem of getting such a large gun to fit in the Sherman's turret was solved, the Firefly was put in production in early 1944 in time to equip Field Marshal Montgomery's 21st Army Group for the Normandy landings. It soon became highly valued as its gun could almost always penetrate the armor of the Panther and Tiger tanks it faced in Normandy. In recognition of this, German tank and anti-tank gun crews were instructed to attack Fireflies first. Because the Firefly had a visibly longer barrel, crews tried to camouflage it so the tank would look like a normal 75mm gun, Sherman, from a distance. Between 2100 and 2200 of these Fireflies were manufactured before production wound down in 1945. And this is what I love about history. 
So these fireflies were so much of a threat, the German tank and anti-tank crews were instructed to attack these fireflies first. Can you imagine if you're in the in this tank and you're like, man, I, I can kill these things. And then you catch word that they're shooting anything with a long barrel. Man, I'd be camouflaging it too. Oh, heck yeah. The idea of fitting a 17-pounder gun into a Sherman tank had initially been rejected by the Ministry of Supplies Tank Decision Board. Although the British Army had made extensive use of the American-built Sherman tank, it was intended that a new generation of British tanks would replace it in the anti-tank role. First, there was the Cromwell tank, which was expected to use the Vickers high-velocity 75mm gun. This gun would have had a superior anti-tank performance to the U.S. 75mm and 76mm guns that were mounted in the Sherman. The second was the A-30 Challenger, which was based on the Cromwell, but with even more powerful 17-pounder gun. These two tanks and their successors, the Comet and the Centurion, which were already on the drawing board, were to replace the Sherman in British service, and so the prospect of diverting resources to mount the 17-pounder on the Sherman seemed undesirable. The A-30 Challenger tank is the tank from our last episode. I couldn't remember when we talked about the Polish needed help in Normandy. Craig Moore had told us about that. I'm planning to do an episode on the G-30 Challenger tank, but he's the one that said, no, no, they didn't send the poles over in the old, old tanks. They gave them, you know, the A-30 Challenger, Cromwell, and the Fireflies. Go ahead, Russ. This is getting pretty good. Several unofficial attempts were made to improve the firepower of the Sherman. The earliest attempt can be credited to Major George Brightly of the Royal Tank Regiment while he was at Lulworth Armored Fighting School in early 1943. Despite the A-30 Challenger undergoing its initial trials at Lulworth, Brighty was convinced that the Sherman was a better mount for the 17-pounder. However, the turret of the Sherman was too small to allow for the very long recoil of the gun. In a radical adjustment, Brighty removed the recoil system and locked the gun in place, thus forcing the entire tank to absorb the recoil. But this was a far from ideal situation, and there was no telling how long the tank would have been able to handle such a setup. Around June 1943, a colleague of Brighty, Lieutenant Colonel George Witheridge of the Royal Tank Regiment, arrived at Lulworth. A veteran of the North Africa Campaign, Witheridge had experienced firsthand the one-sided battles between British tanks armed with two-pounder guns against Rommel's formidable tanks and anti-tank guns. During the Battle of the Gazala in mid-1942, Witheridge had been blown out of his U.S.-supplied M3 Grant medium tank, and though he recovered from his wounds, he was declared unfit to return to combat duty. Instead, in January 1943, he was posted to Fort Knox in the United States for six months to advise on gunnery, where he was sold on the Sherman tanks. While at Lilworth, Witheridge inspected the A-30 Challenger and joined in the chorus of complaints about the tank. Upon looking at Brighty and learning of his attempts to use the Sherman, Witheridge lent his assistance. He advised Brighty on methods to solve the recoil issue. Not long after, Witheridge and Brighty received a notice from the Department of Tank Design to cease their efforts. Unwilling to abandon the project, Witheridge 
using his connections with such influential people as Major General Raymond Briggs, former GOC of the 1st Armored Division in North Africa, and now director of the Royal Armored Corps, and successfully lobbied Claude Gibb, director general of weapons and instruments production at the Ministry of Supply, to make it an official ministry project. In doing so, the endeavor was taken out of the hands of the highly enthusiastic and devoted amateurs at Lulworth who had initiated it and given to tank professional developers. In doing so, the endeavor was taken out of the hands of the highly enthusiastic and devoted amateurs at Lulworth who had initiated it and it was given to professional tank developers. There's another perfect example. Guys with no combat experience, not talking to the people in the field, and saying, oh, no, 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 we know what's best. It's like anything that happens. You grab your engineers, you get the guys in the field. The guys in the field are saying, these two-pounders are crap. We need something really good. The 17-pounder is a wonderful gun, and we have tons of them. We're making those. And uh, they're like, okay, uh, what, what, what can we do with them? Well, we can fit them in the Sherman. You know, we're going to have to mess with them. But I guess it goes back to this Lieutenant Colonel George uh, Witheridge. And for him to receive a notice from the Department of Tank Design, you know, tell him, cease, don't do it. You know, he's like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do it because I'm tired of our guys getting killed or, you know, outgunned in the field. So he hooks up with another amateur and they start messing with it. And they finally have to go over that, the the design people's heads and go straight to generals and stuff like that and say, hey, these tanks that they're building, they're going to have all sorts of problems. We got the Sherman right in there and all we got to do is pop in a gun. Uh, I'm sorry, Russell, go ahead. It was W.G. Kilborn, a Vickers engineer working for the Department of Tank Design at the time, who transformed their idea into the reality of the prototype of the tank that would serve the British forces from the invasion of Normandy in June 1944 onwards. Now, I want to bring this up because I know our friend, back to Craig Moore, was looking for pictures of Mr. Kilborn. If you're a listener of the show and you are related to him or you've got pictures of Kilborn, please send them to us and we'll forward them to Craig. The first thing Kilborn had to fix was the lack of a workable recoil system for the 17-pounder. The 17-pounder traveled 40 inches, or 1 meter, back as it absorbed the recoil of the blast. This was too long for the Sherman's turret. Kilborn solved this problem by redesigning the recoil system completely rather than modifying it. The recoil cylinders were shortened and placed on both sides of the gun to take advantage of the width of the turret. The gun breech itself was also rotated 90 degrees to allow loading from the left rather than from the top. The radio, normally mounted in the back of the turret in British tanks, had to be moved an armored box or a bustle was attached to the back of the turret to house it, with access through a large hole cut through the turret. The next problem encountered by Kilborn was that the gun cradle, the metal block on which the gun sat, had to be shortened to allow the gun to fit into the firefly, and thus the gun itself was not very stable. Kilborn had a new barrel designed for the 17-pounder that had a longer untapered section at the base, which helped solve the stability problem. 
A new mantlet was designed to house this gun and accept the modified cradle. The Firefly had no armor or mobility advantages over the normal Sherman tank beyond the additional 13 millimeters of protection added to its mantlet. The modifications were extensive enough that the 17-pounders intended for the Firefly had to be factory built specifically for it. What I wanted to bring up is it was just an M4, and they say there's no advantages. Well, they up-armored it. Not much, but, yeah. they, but they did. But they did, yeah. You know, if they took a hit there, they'd have a little bit more protection. You know, they were test-firing that thing, and it went back and smashed the radio. Oh, wow. And they're like, oh. okay, we're... We're going to have to cut the back out uh, and put the radio in the back. Wow. So if you're ever looking at an M4 and, and then you look at the Firefly and it has that bustle, now you know why. Now you know why. I would have done the same thing. I'm like, oh, it should work now. Boom. <laughs> the radio smashed. Uh, I did it, Charlie. Oh, man. Kilborn had to deal with other problems. On the standard Sherman tank, there was a single hatch in the turret through which the commander, gunner, and loader entered and left the tank. However, the 17-pounder's larger breech and recoil system made it significantly more difficult for the loader to exit quickly if the tank was hit. A new hatch was cut into the top of the turret over the gunner's position to resolve this. The final major change was the elimination of the whole gunner in favor of space for more 17-pounder ammunition which was significantly longer than the original 75mm ammunition. Again, in today's tanks, they usually don't, you know, they have one driver up front like the T-34. So they're like, hey, listen, we're going to need that space, so we're not going to put a gunner or assistant driver or whatever your bow gunner or whatever you want to call it, but we're going to put our ammo down there. These are guys that are taking what they got and making it way better. Yeah, making it work for them. Yeah. By October and November 1943, enthusiasm began to grow for the project. The 21st Army Group was informed of the new tank in October 1943, even before final testing had taken place in February 1944, an order for 2,100 Sherman tanks armed with 17-pounder guns was placed. As the Challenger program was suffering constant delays, and it was realized that few would be ready for Normandy. Even worse, it was discovered that the Cromwell did not have a turret ring wide enough to take the new high-velocity 75mm gun, so it would have to be armed with the General Purpose Ordnance QF 75mm. This left the Firefly as the only tank available with firepower superior to the QF 75mm gun in the British Army's arsenal, earning it the highest priority from Winston Churchill. See, that that's your... Tank designers, no, no, we don't want to do anything with these M4s because we we are basically lend leasing them from the United States. We we don't want them. We're going to use our Cromwells. We're going to use our Challengers. We're going to do this, but they were broke. Yeah, you know they had all sorts of design flaws. You know, like you said on the Cromwell, chart wouldn't fit. Yeah, you know, as an engineer, how does it not fit? Good question. <laughs> You know, so there was really a problem there, you know, and you get two guys with battlefield experience or, you know, sit down and say, let me turn the gun sideways, cut a hole in the back for the radio. And we got a, we got a great tank. Yeah. 
But the main point I wanted to make was the Firefly name. The nickname Firefly was adopted due to the bright muzzle flash on the main gun. It was so bright that the gunner and the commander had to close their eyes before shooting. I mean, think about that. They're locked in, they're ready to close, you know, ready to shoot and they're yell fire. They got to close their eyes to pull the trigger. Wow. And what's the first thing they tell you on the gun range? Don't close your exactly, eyes. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Don't blink. Follow now, through. I'd always wondered where they come up with that nickname, and that that's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah that's, that's pretty neat. neat. There's some distinct problems with a bright muzzle flash. Oh, yeah. If you see some Shermans, and they're like, flash, flash, big flash, yeah. you knew what to, yeah. which one to shoot at. Germans are going to go after the long gun. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Russ, uh, give us the stats. Now, I know these are just normal M4, but there is some improvements. Let's just go over those. Yeah, it was designed in 1943. They built between 2100 and 2200 of the Fireflies. The specifications included a mass of 34.75 long tons, or 35.3 tons. It had a length of 19 foot 4 inches, or 5.89 meters. And overall, it had a length of 25 foot 6 inches, or 7.7 meters long. So basically, it added another 6 feet yeah. on the front of the tank because yeah. of the barrel. 17-pounder is a long gun. The tank had a width of 8 foot 8 inches, or 2.64 meters wide. had a height of 9 foot, or 2.7 meters high. It had a crew of 4, which included a commander, the gunner, a loader slash radio operator and a driver. Like on the normal M4s, it had five because of the bow gunner. Yeah. But like we said, they removed that crew member, filled it up full of 17-pounder long shells. Yeah. <laughs> the armor of the vehicle had 89 millimeters of armor on the turret front. The main armament was a QF 17-pounder or 76.2-millimeter gun. And they usually carried about 77 rounds of ammunition. No wonder they had to get rid of that exactly. spot. Exactly. <laughs> well, what kind of secondary armament did it have? It had a turret top mounted 50 caliber Browning M2 machine gun. It also had a coaxial 0.30 inch Browning M1919 machine gun. And they usually carried about 5,000 rounds of ammo for those. Gotcha. The engine was a multi bank or radial engine. Petrol engine, depending on the the chassis that was actually used, which put out about 425 horsepower. Power to weight ratio was about 12 horsepower or 9 kilowatts per ton. The suspension was a vertical volute coil spring suspension system. Had an operational range of 120 miles or 193 kilometers and a maximum speed of 25 miles per hour or 40 kilometers per hour. You know, I love the stats. Um, Russell, I know the Firefly was in some amazing battles, but tell me your favorite Firefly fight. In perhaps her most famous action, British and Canadian Fireflies defeated the heavy armor of a German counterattack at St. Asian de Kremsnil during Operation Total Ease on August 8th of 1944, resulting in the destruction of five Tiger tanks and the death of the attack's leader, the noted German tank commander, Michael Whitman. <laughs> yeah, people study Whitman. I personally have huge problems with Whitman. 
And uh, we're going to talk about Whitman in, in an upcoming episode. But he was like the number one German tank ace, or, or he was a German tank ace. Some old boy in a firefly <laughs> ruined his day one day kicked at this battle. Kicked his butt with a 17-pounder. Yep. The battle involved fireflies from A Squadron, 1st Northamptonshire Yeomanry, the 33rd Armored Brigade, A Squadron, the Sherbrooke Fusilers Regiment, the 2nd Canadian Armored Brigade, and B Squadron, the 144th Regiment Royal Armored Corps, the 33rd Armored Brigade. That's a lot of brigades. It is. So this is this wasn't a little battle. Oh, this, no. This is yeah. a big one. This is a big battle. They ambushed a group of seven Tiger tanks from the 3rd Company and HQ Company, 101st SS Heavy Tank Battalion, supported by Panzer IV tanks and Stug IV assault guns. So they're ready to go hit this place, and they know that the 101st SS Heavy Tank Battalion is there, and besides their heavy tanks, they've got these, you know, Panzer IVs and Stug IVs. The Germans are ready for a fight. Yeah, yeah, they were. The tanks of the 1st Northamptonshire Yeomanry reached the French village of St. Agen de Crumsail on the morning of August 8th, 1944. While B squadrons stayed around the village, A and C squadrons moved further south into a wood called Del de la Roque. C Squadron positioned themselves on the east side of the woods and the understrength A Squadron in the southern portion with number three troop on the western edge of the wood. From this position, they overlooked a large open section of ground and were able to watch as German tanks advanced up Route Nationale 158 from the town of Sintho. They held their fire until the German tanks were well within range. Eakins, the gunner of Sergeant Gordon's Sherman Firefly, had yet to fire his gun in action. With the Tigers in range, a 12-minute battle commenced that saw Eakins destroy all three Tigers that number three troop could see. A short time later, the main German counterattack was made in the direction of C Squadron, A Squadron, less Sergeant Gordon, who had been wounded and already bailed out of the Firefly, moved over to support them, and in the resulting combat, Eakins destroyed a Panzer IV before his tank was hit and the crew were forced to bail out. Yeah, the Firefly took out the best German tank ace. We need to, like I said, we need to do a second yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. second point on him. And talking about second points, uh, let's get to Douglas K and his Firefly called the Carol. Tank enthusiasts frequently admire a tank and blissfully identify its markings as well as its physical features. The version or type of hull, turret, gun, running gear, or tracks. This tendency to focus on the vehicle rather than what it represents holds especially true for Sherman tanks, which carry dizzying combinations of these various elements. We often forget, however, that each of these fighting vehicles was manned by five young men who had names and families and dreams, and many made the ultimate sacrifice inside those very vehicles. Carol stands out in that Douglas K, its gunner, survived the war and serves as a reminder of the human element we often ignore. You know, I hate to say that. We try to talk about the tanks, but our second point, we usually try to talk about yeah. somebody that actually drove it. Yeah. And there's so many, uh, like, tank modelers or tank enthusiasts, uh, even us. We drive all over the United States, 
you know, thousands of miles we've put on rental cars. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we go and we, you know, grab these tanks and hug them and just say, oh, how cool. But we forget sometimes about the poor kid that was stuck in it. Yeah. The actual tank, Carol, was a Sherman Mark V Firefly belonging to the 13th slash 18th Royal Hoosiers Regiment of the 27th Armor Brigade of the British Army. In its eight-month operational life, Carol participated in the D-Day invasion in Normandy in June 1944 and in Operation Market Garden in Holland in September 1944. It was destroyed in Germany in February in 1945. So this Carol was in the Normandy, you know, landings. Had to push through the hedgerow countries, get into these tank fights, fighting, you know, front line. There's the beach. Yeah. You're the tank on the beach. You're mm-hmm. like one of the first tanks out there. You have to push through all this hedgerow country and keep going and then get involved in Market Garden. Yeah. Um, if you guys don't know about Market Garden, you might have watched the movie called Bridge Too Far. Yeah. And if you haven't seen the Bridge Too Far, it, uh, know the tanks, some are more, more realistic because they actually used a, uh, a leopard tank. <laughs> as one of the German tanks. Oh, ah. no. yeah. yeah, if you watch the bridge part, you'll uh, you'll see a, a German <laughs> leopard tank coming down there. It's kind of funny. So if you haven't watched that or you're like, Charlie, you're nuts. There's no leopard in that. There were not. <laughs> yes, if you, if you watch the bridge scene where the tanks are coming across, you'll spot the leopard. They've kind of tried to shape it up to be like a Panzer IV, but it's a leopard. <laughs> <laughs> Royal Hussars took part in the Normandy landings on Sword Beach on June 6, 1944, successfully spearheading the invasion force in support of the British 3rd Infantry Division. Sword Beach, assigned to the British Army, was the easternmost Allied landing site. All told, almost 30,000 Allied troops came ashore at Sword Beach with losses of 683 men on June 13, 1944, a week after D-Day. The Germans had occupied the village in early June and from there had been attacking British positions at Sword Beach. Carroll's unit, Squadron C of the 13th-18th Royal Hussars, successfully supported the 6th Airborne Division in securing Breville, thereby protecting the beachhead. The British Army disbanded the 27th Armored Brigade in July 1944 and Carroll and the 13th-18th Royal Hussars were transferred to the 8th Armored Brigade. During this time, Carroll is credited with knocking out a Tiger and a Panther on August 11th and 12th, 1944, towards the end of the Normandy campaign. As part of Operation Market Garden, Carroll crossed the Nemegan Bridge, a key Allied objective, on September 21st, 1944. The fighting was so brutal at Nemegan that it came to be known as Little Omaha. It has been compared to Guam, Tarawa and Omaha Beach. Here's this tank. Literally, you can find the Carol everywhere in models and stuff like that. It's killed a tiger tank. Uh, I mean, a real tiger tank. It killed it. A panther. It's been in tons of fighting, supporting the infantry, you know, helping the airborne division. And they're in this battle. It's just a bloody, bloody fight. I mean, some of that fighting was actually street to street. And they're having to support these people. Carroll was destroyed on February 12, 1945, 
in Goetsch, Germany, by an 88-millimeter round that entered through the mantlet and lodged itself in the radio box at the rear of the turret. The round killed Sergeant Fred Scamp, the commander, and Trooper Wilson, a substitute gunner who was filling in for Douglas Kay, who was on leave at that particular day. Kay refers to himself as the luckiest man in the world because of this tragic but fortuitous event. He lands in Normandy, okay? Any tankers or any tank weapons are hiding in all this hedgerow. He's fighting through it. He tangles with an actual tiger tank, kills it. Okay, that's a big deal. Oh, yeah. All right. Getting through the hedgerow country without getting a bazooka in the side, because they were all over mm-hmm. and, yeah. and bloody fighting, to survive that, <laughs> big deal. Yeah. There's tons of tanks that did not make it through the hedgerow country. Yeah. If you don't believe me, you need to read up on the hedgerows country. The British had it really rough up basically, I would call the northern part of France, because, you know, Patton and those guys went down and cut across the plains. But the British and the Canadians and, and the rest of the Allies, they had to push all through that hedgerow country. The Americans were like, hey, we're getting out of yeah. here. We're, we're, we're heading towards the fields. Mm. We'll head towards Paris. Have a nice day. Yeah. So these guys had to slug it out. So they battle that, kill a Panther tank on the way, which is, you know, a, kind of a tremendous deal. He gets into the market garden, gets into the, that fight, but he gets enough time where the commander's like, listen, you need some time off. Take off. Take a couple of days off. Okay, we can get this kid to be the gunner. Then he comes back from his leave and finds out that somebody fired an 88 through there and killed the kid in his spot. Mm. Now, that's terrible for that poor kid. But if you're Douglas K., you are the luckiest man in the world. He survived. He got all the way out. So tragic. The people were killed. But you know what? He should have bought a lottery ticket that day. There you go. Great episode, Russ. I really was. Yeah. I really enjoyed this one. You know? Yeah. I mean, people are going to say, oh, you're just talking about the M4. No. The Firefly deserved its own episode. It did. It really did. I guess that brings us to our closing, and that means our Patreon supporters. All right. Remember, people, we do need your support. It is getting tough around here. Um, We are spending quite a bit. I can't even believe we're spending money now on buying non-copyrighted music. Yeah. We've been tagged almost every month over music that we try to play. Yeah. So we've actually had to use money besides using, you know, buying new equipment and saving up for new mics and stuff like that. So if you listen to the show and you want to support it, uh, please, please do. One of our big goals is when I do get retired and able to get more time off is to get back to a lot of these museums we've already been to at least once. Absolutely. And then my main goal is to have the equipment to where we can do some decent recordings of some interviews with the folks at these museums. Absolutely. And bring that back to our listeners. That's the, my main goal. I mean, with with the money that, that we've been fortunate enough to already bring in from our patrons, I mean, that means tons to us. You so guys, it will come back and help the show. I mean, it you will. You guys that are Patreon supporters, we 
we thank you, man. Oh, we, yeah. Like I said, uh, there's Russ, been a couple of them that's been with us from the start. It, Very much appreciated, guys. It, and you've sent out some coins. Yeah. So everybody should be getting yeah. their coins coin soon yeah if you're a patreon user and you haven't got your uh special coin let us know yeah we'll 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 send it to you yeah we will get those to you i promise all right russ so pretty good show i want to talk about uh our patreons let's give them a shout out we'll start out by uh thanking antonio bernarda you know he sent us a message the other day i think it was and he says you guys are killing my name I know. Uh, uh, dude, how many times do you think we get message from people saying, uh, when you guys were talking about the Battle of St. Blah, oh, blah, 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 I know. French, you guys screwed it up. I need to take dude, some French and German lessons, I guess. Yeah, you took Spanish. <laughs> I still love that, that the Spanish club in oh, your high school, man. you know, the French people or the French club said, hey, you guys need to throw your money in here good lord you know we apologize but we're kind of hicks from the kansas we are (laughs) i also want to thank slam jamington he's fairly new with us and want to appreciate his support still got alejandro martinez he's been with us for a little while now bjorn ben ods theoro and uh kevin shin and our book winner, believe it or not, I know it was legit, straight up. It was. It was Rick Schmidt. Congratulations, Rick. Yep, congrats, Rick. Well, I guess that does it. So until next time, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great week. Mm-hmm.